0: The philosophy of King is not defined with respect to the philosophy of nonviolence. The overarching moral and spiritual philosophy of King is not defined by the particular political prescriptions he pursued, but rather by the greater anchoring in faith, in virtue, and a belief in the godly power of love that animated it, because philosophical nonviolence is a cast of mind.
1: Welcome to the Acton Vault podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. In this episode, we're bringing you a talk from our Acton Lecture Series from January 2023 that was co-sponsored by the Russell Kirk Center for Cultural Renewal. In their own time, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Russell Kirk occupied different ends of the political spectrum. Their philosophies inspired the two most powerful movements of the age, the nonviolent movement, which led the larger civil rights movement, and the modern conservative movement. Without King and Kirk, modern American social justice liberalism and modern American conservatism as we know them would not exist. And yet, for all of their differences, our modern politics suffer Because contemporary liberalism and conservatism lack the grounding in virtues, communitarian values and faith in an ordered universe that both Kingian nonviolence and Kirkian conservatism held fast to. Is it possible that by reacquainting ourselves with these lost traditions, we could summon the better angels of left and right and restore a politics of virtue for the modern age? John Wood Jr. is a writer, podcaster, and noted public speaker, nationally recognized as a leading voice on the issues of political and racial reconciliation. He is a national ambassador for Braver Angels, America's largest grassroots bipartisan organization dedicated to political depolarization. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as previous episodes on our website at acton.org/podcast. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend, and by leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act Vault is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen.
2: Good evening, and welcome to the Acton Building and to this evening's program, uh, sponsored co-sponsored tonight, uh, of course, between Acton Institute and the Russell Kirk Center for Cultural Renewal. Now, Jeff and I were meeting some weeks back, and we said we should look for ways to work together, which we both believe is a rather good idea. We do, after all, share the commitments to the same principles or shall we say, the permanent things, which have prospered Western civilization. And we have a formidable common enemy, an all-consuming Leviathan, which in our various complementary ways we are working to slay. So here we are this evening, and we're glad you are here. Now, I won't steal much of Jeff's thunder in describing the Kirk Center, headquartered north of here, Piety Hill, where the intellectual giant, Russell Kirk, wrote 30-plus books, including his magnum opus, The Conservative Mind. He and his wife, the incomparable Annette Kirk, who I know is here. Hello, Annette. Raised four beautiful daughters at Piety Hill and, and began to welcome intellectual pilgrims from around the world. Now, Russell was already a legend when Acton Institute was founded here in Grand Rapids in 1990. And it was natural that Acton extended an invitation to Russell to serve on our advisory board. And it was a terrific honor that he accepted this invitation, along with other invitations to engage with Acton, including welcoming staff to Piety Hill and public lectures here under our aegis. It is worth noting that Russell's last public lecture he delivered to a sold-out Acton audience on the topic Lord Acton on Revolution which I commend to you and is available from our bookshop. The Acton-Kirk connection goes deeper still. Within our first months, we hired a receptionist, Acton employee number three, a Miss Monica Kirk, Russell Annette's oldest daughter. Not long after that, we hired a smart, young, budding intellectual as employee number four. His name was Jeff Nelson. Now, Jeff worked for Acton for a year, which is why I will take credit for all his subsequent successes in his professional life, including a stint as a college president, founder, and manager of a a book publishing imprint, and executive vice president of one of the most illustrative classical liberal organizations, ISI, founded by none other than William F. Buckley. And did I mention that somewhere along the way... He met, fell in love, and married Russell and Annette's second daughter, Cecilia, who is also here somewhere tonight. Cecilia. And that brings brings me full circle to the Russell Kirk Center for Cultural Renewal, which was, in fact, co-founded by Jeff and Annette Kirk. And after many successful years, decades, under Annette's successful day-to-day management, Jeff now leads the Kirk Center as its executive director and CEO. Now, our format this evening will include a 30-minute lecture, followed by an opportunity for questions from the audience. At the appropriate time, colleagues of mine will emerge with microphones, and we ask that you beckon them over and speak into the mic so that our digital audience, tonight we're being uh, simulcast, can fully participate in the discussion. So I have given short shrift to tonight's important topic and indeed to its speaker, but I leave this important duty to Jeff Nelson. Could you please join me in welcoming Jeff? You, sir.
3: He just said he didn't praise me enough in terms of uh, my early contributions to the Acton Institute. Uh, that's Chris. I don't. Uh, now's not the time, but that day will come. <laughs> uh, I have. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm as you can tell, very used to following. Chris Maurer, I've been in a very broad sense doing it now for three decades. Uh, as he said, he's, he was my first boss in the uh, conservative liberty movement. And he's not lying when he says that he can take credit uh, for whatever, you know, I little I may have ac- accomplished in the liberty movement since I left Acton because I learned so much from Chris from those early days about how, you know, effective, uh, humane— Organizations, ideas, organizations are built and how they, you deal with employees and all these things were new to me. I was an academic and uh, learning uh, the, uh, the, the connection between the financial, the administration, the operational side of building a world class organization. And I, when I started, I started in Kirk and uh, uh, Chris's uh, uh, apartment above a flower shop, and uh, we had a lot of great times to, uh, uh, talking and occasionally some uh, good moments out on the golf course, um, and, uh, and, it's, and it's been wonderful to be friends for all these years and to see because you really, Chris, I don't need to tell you here in Grand Rapids, uh, who support the, uh, the Acton Institute, that he is one of the great uh, institutional uh, uh, and organizational entrepreneurs of his generation. Um, he and Father Sirico built a wonderful uh, and, and sig- highly significant organization in just three decades plus, and now Chris at the home, I know they're going to do so much more and build on the great uh, foundation that Chris and Father Sirico built. So it's a privilege to be here at the Acton Institute. We do share so many uh, friends and ideas in and, and common, and to be in this uh, partnership, and now to meet new Actonians or new to, to here, people, uh, I'm grateful to Colette for uh Organizing this, and Steve Barrows and John Pinheiro for helping us uh, put everything together. So it's a terrific team here, and uh, the, uh, the 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 Kirk Center crew is glad to be here as well. As they mentioned Annette and uh, and Cecilia, um, but uh, we have uh, the Kirk Center's very first. Uh, director of events and programs here tonight, Emily Corwin, who is her very first day on the job. So we talked about sort of humane management that I learned for Chris. I need to like put it into practice uh, now over the next many months. But uh, she's a real pro, and uh, it's great to have her and all of you here uh, together tonight. It's a it's a kind of we're a, we're a, we're a family of friends of freedom. And we have different emphases and different traditions. But it's important that we work together in this day and age, especially uh, where within the in the liberty movement, uh, things are fray, fraying in, in a variety of troublesome directions. And I think the Kirk tradition of conservatism and the Acton tradition of classical liberalism, friendly to conservatism, uh, really uh, have a lot of opportunity to forge an important connections together. And so I look forward to exploring those uh, more as I'm now back in in, in this part of the world world and happy to be after uh, three decades. Well, we're all here, uh, and many of us are here tonight, and we all understand, we're here because we understand, that to move forward and through our various programmatic interests, we must explore uh, fresh educational approaches and initiatives aimed at renewing America's tradition of economic, political, and religious liberty. That's why why we've come here tonight. Uh, I think this is probably one of, hopefully, I think it's one of the most interesting and suggestive and hopefully most important uh, Martin Luther King Day events in Grand Rapids today, maybe in quite some time, uh, to explore the seemingly uh, you know, uh, contradictory tradi- uh, people, uh, personalities in Russell Kirk and Martin Luther King. Um, when I was growing up as a young college student, not so long ago, but somewhat long ago, uh, you know, it was, it was pretty much commonplace that uh, Martin Luther King was just a dangerous radical, a fraud, uh, a, a, a conventional, uh, a progressive, anti-American. And that was being taught from both the left and the right. And that was sort of our assumptions. We carried our baggages of assumptions just like the left carries their baggages of assumptions. And uh, that I, I carried through for a lot of my life. And I know that two uh, students then and now... Uh, progressive students and, and some conservative students had the same view of Russell Kirk. Uh, they, they, they viewed him and his writings in uh, kind of reductionist ways and, uh, and, uh, and viewed him as a, uh, a kind of a defender, a mindless defender of the status quo or of, radical, of business interests, or et cetera, and dismissed him and labeled him without thinking. And that was happening in universities uh, uh, for many uh, years. And that I, I think, and and for a variety of reasons, and John Wood will speak to this, that these that some of these silos are breaking down, and there's some opportunities for fresh thinking, and to look and 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 to think of explore the ways in which Martin Luther King, uh, and and Russell Kirk were in their way, uh, in their particular way, in their particular traditions, with their emphases and their projects, still working within the same. Christian, Western, and American um, tradition that aimed to recover and conserve and and enliven those enduring norms and principles that Russell Kirk called the permanent things. And to strengthen, in fact, one of Dr. Kirk's favorite phrases to describe what he was doing all the time, what is he studying, what was the aim of his study. And he would say oftentimes it's to strengthen the American tradition of order and justice and freedom. And those concepts are big ideas, and they're all interrelated and and the, the and and their words and traditions and ideas that i think both preoccupied martin luther king and russell kirk and and, and to that end i think we while there's many differences obviously and and uh, but uh it's it's an opportunity today to maybe look at some of the common ground that uh that we have um and just saying that makes makes the whole concept tonight uh, the whole uh, topic tonight so interesting to me i mean i've i've been in really looking forward to this event because and I'll, uh, John Wood is one of the most exciting, um, humble but exciting uh, young thinkers. He's fresh. He's creative. He's really open and interested to ideas and currents across the spectrum. Although he has his strong philosophical and intellectual ground, he's very good and capable of uh, of, of, of navigating the polarization. Uh, ideological uh, pol- and political polarization that is so prevalent today. He's breaking down barriers. A lot of times when I'm out talking to influential people, people like yourselves, friends, or just in coffee shops, they'll say, well, who are some of the young thinkers today? Or who are some of the thinkers today that are kind of, you know, we, we should know about or saying fresh things or, you know, talking about some ideas that are a little, uh, that, that we should know about that aren't con- as, as as conventional And uh, I frequently comment that uh, John Woods is one of those people you need to know. And uh, John has been a leading force with Braver Angels. Some of you know Braver Angels. John is a national ambassador. John's a leading figure in the whole movement of depolarization, exploring within the Christian tradition and within, you know, sort of the left-right debates, a ways to sort of ratchet ratchet the, the intensity down and find some ways in which to uh, uh, forge authentic common ground, uh, genuine common ground, listening and understanding uh, each other in ways that are, are, are difficult today. Uh, his group, uh, Braver Angels, is the largest uh, a bipartisan grassroots organization dedicated to the work of, of, the, of depolarization. He's an opinion columnist for the uh, uh, USA Today uh, prior to that, John was a nominee for Congress in California, uh, California's 43rd District uh, in the 2014 electri- election cycle, afterwards serving as the second vice chairman of the Republican Party of Los Angeles County, which is America's largest county-level Republican Party. Uh, he's a highly regarded speaker on matters of, mat- uh, of race and uh, political reconciliation for reasons that you'll, uh, you'll discover. He's a member of uh, the Progress Network, uh, an, initiation, an initiative of the New America Foundation dedicated to foster civilizational progress through thought leadership across the wide spectrum of views, a fellow builder with New Pluralists, a, collaborate, a collaborative organization dedicated to civic bridge building and racial justice, with an advisor, uh, he's an advisor also of the American Project which is an initiative, an initiative of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy dedicated to restoring communitarian roots of conservatism. John's a fresh uh, and light. He's, he's, uh, his, his star is ascending. He's got a very popular podcast, and young people talk about him uh, all, uh, everywhere I go. So it's really nice to have Great to have him come all the way from Los Angeles on this rainy January night in Grand Rapids to be with us uh, to talk uh, about uh, Martin Luther King and Russell Kirk, A Consensus of First Principles. John.
0: Thank you, Jeff. Thank you all very much. I, um, I, I, you know, I, just, I need to make a note to myself in general to tell the people who introduced me not to set the bar so high. <laughs> you know, at some, at some point I may fail to, fail to clear it, but hopefully this is not uh, one, of the, one of those nights. No, but Jeff, it's, it's great to be here with you, great to see you again, Cecilia, uh, Annette, so nice to see you, uh, and new friends, Chris, Stephen, it's good to see you. Um, and it's wonderful to, hear, to, to, to be with all of you to talk about something that may seem like a counterintuitive sort of juxtaposition, right? Um, this idea, that the two most let us say catalytic figures of the mid twentieth century in terms of spurring the movements that would go forward to define the further arc of American history, the conservative movement on the one hand, and you might say the the civil rights movement, and within that the nonviolent movement, the mainstream of the American uh, social justice movement of that era, which produced such Uh, indelible change, that these two individuals who you would instinctively assume would be polar opposites on the political spectrum, and in point of fact, they were, nevertheless were proceeding from a place of deep convergence with respect to the subterranean architecture, if you will, of the philosophies that they represented, and in so being the case, Perhaps, just maybe, just maybe, if we can sort of identify the places at which these individuals converged in meaningful ways, we might be able to restore unto ourselves in the present moment um, an understanding of how it is we might more effectively bridge the divide in our current time. Because I would argue, as you'll hear me do shortly, that both American Modern American social justice and modern American conservatism in many respects have lost their way because each tradition I would suggest has found itself to greater or lesser degree untethered from the deeper anchorings um, of virtue, of faith, of community in their understandings of freedom that for all of the political differences that existed between Dr. King and Russell Kirk, nevertheless represented sort of the deep soil from which the immense good that came from those movements sprung. So I can say a little bit uh, about, by way of leading into that uh, conversation, uh, about how I sort of come to this uh, topic. So I was speaking to a number of you earlier today about sort of you know, how I come to... Conservatism, how I come to to politics, uh, broadly broadly speaking. So I'm going to tell a story that I told to some of you folks earlier on, but there's a there's a twist that comes at the end of it. So you know, you can you can go to sleep for a moment if you heard me say this earlier, and then wake up uh, at uh, at the punchline or the punchline that follows the punchline. Uh, I um, so uh, Jeff mentioned. Um, Depending on which Jeff I'm talking to, I'll say other Jeff, but since both Jeffs are in, in the room, uh, I will say Jeff without numerical uh, designation. Um, but um, I um, was an nominee for Congress back in 2014. I actually ran against Maxine Waters in that election cycle. Uh, for anybody who uh, doubts my commitment to uh, you know, <laughs> keeping keeping, uh, keeping the peace in the political battlefield... Um, I was actually the most successful uh, Democrat or Republican to ever run against Congresswoman Waters over the full arc of her now, I think, 54-year uh, year, uh, career in elected office. Uh, I won in the, I lost in the, in the smallest landslide of anybody uh, who ever ran, ran against the <laughs> Congresswoman. Uh, scratched the underside of 30%, which wasn't bad for a 26-year-old kid with no resume, no prior political experience. Um, I didn't have much going for me in the way of money or sort of history in politics, but I knew the issues pretty well. I knew the community well, and I also had a story to tell. So the California 43rd is a very left-leaning sort of uh, area, predominantly black and Latino, but with strong pockets of of suburban conservatives, mostly white, some Asian. And so I had a bit of a canned opening line that I would roll out when I was speaking to folks, whether I was speaking to an audience at a— at a, at a Democratic-leaning black church in South Central Los Angeles or to a white, uh, predominantly white tea party club in South Bay L.A. County, people would always ask me, they'd say, what at the age of 26 makes you qualified to represent a district like, you know, the California 43rd in L.A.? And I'd tell people, well, you know, I come from— uh, from an interesting family background, my mother is a liberal black Democrat from inner city of Los Angeles. My father is a conservative white Republican from Tennessee. I grew up explaining my mother to my father, my father to my mother, and that's why I can represent all of you. And it tended, to <laughs> there you go, and it to be tended to be good good for a laugh. Now, you know, the funny thing is is I grew up, um, you know, with political and racial diversity in my family, but, you know, the majority of my relatives were left-leaning. I grew up a liberal activist. I didn't start really studying conservatism uh, until uh, after having worked for the Obama campaign in 2008. I looked at Barack Obama as having echoed the the high-minded, moral, uh, social aims of Martin Luther King, Jr. To me, the idea of hope and change suggested the post-partisan, post-racial America neither red states or blue states, but the United States, not black, white, or Latino America, but the United States of America. This idea of an America where we do not speak of white power or black power, but rather God's power and human power, uh, that, to me, seemed to be the message that uh, Barack Obama was echoing. And so I followed his campaign, worked for his campaign. And when it was all said and done, I took it upon myself to start studying conservatism in an effort to sort of bring Republicans and conservatives into the fold. Long story short, I wound up sort of converting myself. But here's sort of the funny thing about how that ends, because I um, began taking in information from different places, reading books I hadn't read before, The Wealth of, Na- Wealth of Nations, Adam Smith, Atlas shrugged. I read the Bible from cover to cover, I had a religious conversion. That is its own story. It's very relevant to the tale here. Didn't really get to Russell Kirk until, honestly, after my 2014 campaign. And when I started reading Russell Kirk, I was struck, yes, by his philosophy, by, you know, sort of who this man was in the context of American conservatism, the history thereof, the thinkers who he brought to my attention. But one in particular stood out to me just because I realized I had a little bit of a connection uh, to, uh, to, to Kirk and the story he was telling, just insofar as um, my name is um, John Randolph Wood Jr. I was named after my father, who was named after my grandfather, one Randolph Claywood who happened to have been the, uh, the, the founder and owner uh, of America's biggest independent record label in the 1950s and early 60s, Dot Records, which was Pat Boone and Lawrence Welk and folks like that. And Grandpa was named after uh, the great orators of the Senate, as my father explained to me when I was little, um, one of them being Henry Clay and the other being John Randolph of Roanoke, who I knew nothing about uh, until later on, after having run for Congress myself— as a conservative <laughs> uh, in Los Angeles, realizing that I was actually uh, named after one, you know, that is to say uh, a man who uh, sought uh, congressional uh, office by the name of John Randolph. And so I now uh, somewhat uh, proudly go by the moniker, at least when I'm speaking to my good friend Jeff Nelson, of uh, John Randolph of South L.A. And so, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, that is a tag that I, you know, happily, happily embrace. But I'm somebody who thought of himself as growing up in Dr. King's promised land. You know, um, Many people have explained to me how the United States of America is as racist today as it's ever been. But the truth is is that I grew up in a time and in a place where I was deeply loved by people of very different skin colors and people of very different politics took me a while to realize that perhaps not all of America is that way, but it seemed that the power and impact of King's philosophy was one that genuinely did move the needle in terms of our national conscience and the way we treat each other as Americans. His legacy was well-reported to me as a kid growing up in the public school system in Los Angeles. But one thing that was not particularly emphasized to me about King, though I knew he was a reverend, though clearly he was a religious man, was just how deep and just how, just how vital King's understanding of society and the universe as proceeding from the mind and heart of an omnipotent creator was to his understanding of the power by which we affect social change in American life and in human life, broadly speaking, Dr. King was a person who believed in an ordered universe. I was a person who sought to dedicate myself to being a voice for King's philosophy without ever having quite been pointed out, pointed to the fact that this was where his perspective began. And in reading Russell Kirk, one of the first things I uh, lit upon was the idea that conservatism, in Kirk's view, is not really conservatism unless it proceeds from this assumption that we live in an ordered universe, that there is a design within which all things unfold. And that seemed to me like a striking harmony for two individuals that I knew lived in the same time, had different politics, uh, and yet had launched these powerful movements that in different ways had seemed to come untethered from that starting point, in some sense. That's the beginning of the similarity, not the end. Dr. King in believing, not just in God as an abstract fact, but in the idea that there's a creator that animates all things, believed that the nature of God was such that it must express itself in the human personality in order for us to affect change in society in ways that would be pleasing to that will. King believed in, in a God who's a God of love, that God is love. And to quote John in the first epistle, first epistle of John, and that love is a spiritual force by which we can can affect social transformation. But to love is to embody the virtues of love. And so the philosophy of nonviolence is a virtue philosophy. King's teachings centered in on the idea that love requires us to act in a spirit of goodwill towards our opponents, to regulate the way we think about our opponents so that we do not think wickedly about one another inwardly, and that in so doing, we give ourselves the power to speak to the conscience of those who disagree with us. In believing that God is ordering the universe, it set the grounding for a higher level of human conduct in King's view, as well as a higher level of hope, a belief of faith in the idea that ultimately, as has been amply quoted by President Obama and many, many others, that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Kirk believed that we live in an ordered universe, that the station that we live in, that we occupy in life, is something of a divine tactic, a divine appointment, that the structures, the institutions of our society, the arrangements of our society, from age to age and generation to generation are tied to one another in a dialogue that connects the past with the future. And each successive generation finds itself connected uh, in a thread of destiny. And so he references, of course, in The Conservative Mind, uh, Edmund Burke, who speaks of the spiritual unity of society, of humanity. And what does this cultivate in us? What does this instill in us, this idea that the design of of human civilization as it proceeds from the creator and is imperfectly implemented by man, that we should not be humble before redesigning things according to the limits of our own intelligence, that before we engage in the innovations of of state power and democratic uh, reforms with an effort to perfect all that we can observe as being imperfect, that we take our time to delineate, as I seem to recall Kirk writing, uh, the divine contours uh, within which society finds its arrangements, or the divine lineaments, perhaps, was the phrase. And so it's interesting because we, of course, have to remember that you know King is proceeding in his politics from a position of seeking to affect dramatic change in society. Kirk and his politics, and the conservative movement that he inspired, you know, is seeking to, you know, I guess a colloquial way to put it is would be something like, you know, seeking to keep us from throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, to remember that traditions and present social arrangements exist as they do for a reason, not because they always have to be in place in the way that they are, but that we ought not change a single thing until we understand why things are the way they are in the first place, and then proceed with prudence. So prudence is a virtue and a way of being and a way of understanding. But what's interesting about this is that even as King seeks to dramatically in many respects, change and challenge the status quo of society and even as Kirk seeks to root us in an appreciation for why things are the way that they are, they both have a criteria for how it is they pursue political reform or advocating for the maintenance of things as they are that is rooted in virtue, that is rooted in humility and an understanding that there is a greater wisdom that calls us towards our actions and leaves us in our stations. And so what's the significance of that? For those who seek to change things in society, Dr. King brought a message of, yes, moral urgency during a time in which the immoral racial castes and hierarchies that were foisted upon society uh, across the course of our history and that culminated in the social collisions of the 1960s. Um, Yes, these were structures that he challenged, but he called upon his followers to engage the changing of those structures with love for those uh, who sought to maintain them and love for those who would challenge their own point of view and perspective as reformers. Dr. King called upon his followers to love the most rabid of their opponents, because philosophical nonviolence, as much as people might want to make the case that Dr. King, you know, on the left, people want to make the case that, oh, Dr. King was, in fact, a radical, oh, Dr. King was a social democrat, Dr. King was this, that, and the other. Yes, we know his politics were, were broadly speaking, you know, liberal, although there are many conservative things about, about King, but... King required those who would walk in his footsteps to honor the humanity uh, of those whom they challenged, because King's goal was not the overthrow of American society or the overthrow of its traditions and its institutions, but rather a living up to the higher ideals of the American founding, and an inclusion, the creation of a space of a a democracy of genuine inclusion, where white, black, left and right, and all of us, regardless of our religious banners, could find ourselves in deep relationship with one another as co-members of the beloved community. This is something that you cannot do without Christian virtue, because you have to love your enemy. So King proceeds from that tradition. The philosophy of King is not defined with respect to the philosophy of nonviolence. The overarching moral and spiritual philosophy of King is not defined by the particular political prescriptions he pursued, but rather by the greater anchoring in faith, in virtue, and a belief in the godly power of love that animated it because philosophical nonviolence is a cast of mind just like the conservatism of Russell Kirk, was a cast of mind. Yes, it may lead us to certain conclusions about policy in the context of the challenges of the moment. But I read through the conservative mind, and you go from Alexander Hamilton to John Randolph of Roanoke and others. It's hard to think of certain people who would have less in common in terms of the prescriptions that they offered. But Kirk was calling upon us to be humble, to be prudent, to recognize the fact that there is greater wisdom that is setting in, forth, setting in motion the currents of history in a way that would cause us to look at the arrangements of society and realize that if there are hierarchies, they are responding to genuine human needs, if there are structures and institutions which would seem to afford privileges to some and not to others, it does not mean that the remedy for this is a leveling of all things and the imposition of a forced sort of sameness. That change is inevitable. As Tocqueville understood, that change is inevitable. And one of the conclusions that Kirk records Tocqueville is coming to, is the worrying worrisome conclusion uh, from his vantage point that the democratization of American society uh, and society far beyond america 's shores uh, was so inexorable and yet so powerful that we ought to simply consider it um, a matter of divine providence, but that nevertheless this this movement of history uh, is one that requires us uh, to take a step back and to appreciate the wisdom that exists in the way things are. Now, that gives us two different trajectories for how history flows, and yet they converge in harmony. And this is kind of the core of the case that I make in some sense. So Kirk uh, discusses Alexis de Tocqueville, and Tocqueville says that while it seems to him inevitable that the, that the democratization of humanity is something that will proceed without, uh, without uh, pause to those who would worry about its implications, that nevertheless it is not hopeless that man should succumb to the perversion uh, of democracy, but rather that those who would be vigilant and critical of the tendencies of leveling innovations in democratic society to reduce the human being to one that seeks its gain only through the realization the acquisition of material goods and positive rights without reference to a greater spiritual reality and a sense that we exist in the context of a design of society in which we find our purpose in relation to one another, that vigilance against that tendency is something that could allow for the democratization of American society and for Western civilization in general to not necessarily result in the hollowing out of the human soul. I would argue that Martin Luther King, Jr., in, and as a matter of fact, I'm not even going to qualify the statement. I would argue that Martin Luther King, Jr. represents the positive fulfillment of the type of small-D Democrat that Alexis de Tocqueville was hoping for, and that whether or not Kirk would have recognized King as such in his own time, and I don't know. There really doesn't seem to be much record of Kirk having rendered commentary on King or vice versa, for that matter that nevertheless King was the type of democratic reformer that if it is God's will that society should become more democratic was needed to make sure that democratic process was still able to hearken back to the greater truths. Because one thing that you can read and hear King discussing, King emphasizing to those who walked with him in the effort towards integration in the civil rights movement was the fact that there is actually, although the terms are used interchangeably, he said, a deep and stark difference between integration and desegregation. Desegregation was something that King identified as being enforceable, important, something that the law could do to make sure that people were not unjustly barred in terms of their access to the resources and opportunities of society. But that's all the law can do. That's all desegregation can accomplish. If all we have is desegregation, King said, that it leaves us in a society where we are elbow to elbow, but not heart to heart. That integration was what was required integration being one in which we recognize one another in the full sacredness of human personality, not forcing one another to be the same. King believed in an integration that highlighted the sanctity of human difference. And this obliteration of human difference is precisely what Burke and Tocqueville and Kirk himself a part of what they were concerned with in an industrial, materialistic, commercial society that eradicates what's special about the human individual in the arrangements that evolve over the course of time and in the context of the particular, the particular gifts that we bring to our station in life in relationship to one another. King was seeking to integrate into a society that recognized those things as special and sacred. He wanted those things for America. But he saw the American story as having traveled so woefully adrift from that starting point that, yes, he pursued, he pursued a powerfully passionate and a morally aggressive, and assertive path towards reform, which made him scary to many conservatives. You know, it's hard to know what exactly you're seeing in a man or a woman of action in the moment at which the consequences unfold in real time. The hindsight of history provides us some clarity. But what we can see in Dr. King's philosophy is that he was not trying to destroy the American project. He was trying to help redeem it, as was Kirk, who, like King, was alarmed at the creeping materialism of our corporate industrial society. It's not to cast aspersions on industry, of course. It is merely to say that the democratic impulse and the industrial commercial impulse, they're all things that cause us to find our salvation in things. But people are not things. This is what Dr. King said. And Dr. King and Edmund Burke alike, as Kirk recounts, had a definition of the human being nearly identical to one another, which rested upon this understanding of freedom, that you cannot abstract freedom from the free man, from the free human being. Freedom is not a thing on the outside of me that I can acquire. The proper understanding of the human personality is that he is free by nature and that it is a perversion of things that limits freedom, that cuts off our freedom. They both saw freedom in this way because God intends for us ultimately to be free and yet to be free within structure, to be free within limits. Burke and Kirk and King, King and Kirk and Burke all believed this as well. And so Dr. King talked of, spoke of the freedom of the will, he spoke of choice, but he said that God's providence is supreme, that what we have is the freedom to choose according to our destined nature, right? And so even as conservatism rightly understood emphasizes freedom, it is freedom within the context of a greater reverence for God's design And the reason for the things around us. The reason for the things around us and the things within us. So, in my reflections on these men, on the philosophies that they inspired, I find myself feeling a bit of reverence and humility myself for the greater mind of God. Forgive me if I sound a bit like a preacher at this point. But it's just to say that the nature of our politics, our small-minded political tribalism, is such that we cast all things as zero-sum competitions in the context of our disagreements, to the point at which your existence and mine, if our politics are different, are themselves a zero-sum conflict. And this is the path to violence. This is the path to destruction. When I tell myself that I cannot live with you because I disagree with you because we see things different ways. Right? It also represents a forgetting of Christian wisdom in the deepest and most poignant ways. The truth is, is that if Russell Kirk and Martin Luther King Jr. were sitting here today, they still probably would disagree on all sorts of things. You know, Russell Ger- Kirk was a, was a great champion for Barry Goldwater. Dr. King considered Barry Goldwater the most dangerous man in America. The battles between that generation of Americans were real. And yet, truth and wisdom are transcendent. Love is transcendent because God is. There was good in each of these men. There was wisdom in each of these men. And an America that believes in more than material things or ideological things is an America that can recognize the fact that truth is not the mere property of one political tribe or the other. It comes from a faith that is seasoned by human experience. And so Kirk, in writing about Edmund Burke, makes reference to the fact that while this was a man who sees society as being ordered by a creator, that this is no impractical mystic, but a man whose spirituality is wedded to understanding and encountering reality as it is. It proceeds from an understanding of what is concrete and real in human relationships and does not give in to the flights of fancy that say that I as one intellectual, as one person with an IQ of, I'm not saying this is my IQ, but as one person with an IQ of 150 or an SAT score of 1600 or what have you, has the answers to, to, to life's eternal mysteries or to the, to the problems of political society by no means. He had a high in a high-minded spirituality, Edmund Burke, according to Russell Kirk, but it was one that was calibrated to respond to the realities of real challenges that could be said about Martin Luther King. If we can come to a place to where, on the left and the right, we can revive a commitment to virtue, a commitment to community, A deeper understanding, shared understanding of freedom, the sanctity of the human person, a rejection of mere materialism as a pathway to human flourishing, as important as material things are, and a remembrance of the fact that left or right, we are children of God and derive the sanctity of our persons from the love that he bears for us, then maybe, just maybe, our conflicts no longer have to be quite so zero-sum. We can learn to live with each other more fully again in a deeper vision of what America could be, an America of the beloved community, tied together with every generation of our forebears, linking us forward to our descendants in the thread of destiny And realize the fact that we can believe in America and honor the wisdom of Russell Kirk and Martin Luther King. Thank you very much. Okay, well, I hope that I hope that I cleared the bar, more or less. (laughs) Thank you all. Much appreciated.
4: Thank you so Thank you so much for your
2: It's on. It's on.
0: I can hear you.
4: Thank you so much for your talk um which had many areas of inspiration. Mm. What occurred to me as you were as you were speaking um when you, you spoke of virtue and you spoke of an ordered universe and and, uh, and, and God, mm. um, I, I recalled uh, Jesus, yeah. in which he was saying, "I came to free the oppressed. Mm. You know, I came to release the prisoners." And the way he was doing that was through the power of his love. Yeah. You know, love one another as I've loved you. Do you think that <clears throat> that was really what was elemental, you know, about Dr. King's mission? Mm-hmm. That it wasn't just about the social changes, although that was important, that was extremely important, no question. But that elementally, even deeper, it was this freedom that you speak of, in which, you know, the unvirtue, the, the person unable to live out virtue, is a prisoner. Mm-hmm. They're in chains. And it isn't restricted, or maybe it even—I don't think it was restricted at that time, most certainly, to any particular race, Mm -hmm. Uh, but maybe even more so now. Mm -hmm. It's a question of what is freedom, Mm -hmm. and do you think that that's more elemental in what his message was, is that freedom for all from this— being captured by this slavery of, lack of a better word,
0: sin. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. I believe that that is essentially sort of the first principle uh, of, of King, really. I mean, he, he is, through a godly love, he is seeking freedom and on every level. He is concerned with the material dimension of human life, but ultimately he 's seeking the spiritual liberation that only comes with finding yourself in right relationship with your fellow man and you know with the source uh, that begets us, right uh, And you know, I mean king was um, king was was fairly was very clear about this, uh, really, you know. He said, what we seek is the beloved community. Uh, We seek not to defeat or humiliate our opponents, but to be reconciled to them uh, in friendship so that we may be with each other in the beloved community. Right? It was a vision, you know, of, of, of heaven on earth. It was a vision of the kingdom of God or some approximation of that in some sense. That's what King saw in his mind, in his heart, you know? And and Edmund Burke, who believed in, I mean, Burke had a a vision, sort of an Anglican church that was threaded throughout the fabric of institutional society uh, that wedded its institutions in direct relationship uh, to a reverential sort of understanding of the spiritual contours in which we have the existence of, of the state. And so, you know in the context of, of British society and, and um, you know, this sort of constitutional tradition with which he was familiar, you know, that's sort of the mechanical way, I think, by which Burke and uh, sort of envisioned uh, a similar sort of outcome manifesting. And indeed, uh, Russell Kirk makes reference to someone who, uh, I, I now forget who, who the quote is attributed to, but, you know, the statement uh, in the conservative mind there is that, you know, Burke uh, is sort of, I think, less concerned with, you know, uh, one form of government or other, but rather with building something like the kingdom of, something like uh, the kingdom of heaven on earth. Um, Folks will correct me on the details of that (laughs) imperfect recollection. Um, But the short answer to your question is simply yes.
2: First of all, thank you. That was an amazing uh, speech. Uh, You delivered it very well. I uh, wholeheartedly agree with your conclusions. Um, My question has to do more with uh, uh, an action sense, and bear with me as I wrote this down Mm -hmm. um, so that I could remember it. In our modern social construct, where the idea of the omnipotent director is being assailed on the one side by a new atheism that espouses selfishness as a virtue, and on the other by a progressive Christianity that redefines love as tolerance, absent correction or admonition, mm. what would your suggestion be, and how to apply your conclusions to this willfully self righteous society?
0: Mm. Well, and of course, I, and I agree uh, with both of those, both of those um, forces that you've identified as pushing back against our ability to realize this consciousness. And I could add to that list, the thing to add to that list is, in my humble opinion, um, a religiosity in American culture, society, and politics that is itself unconcerned with the virtues that ought to be, ought to be definitive of what it means to be religious and certainly to be, to be Christian. Uh, the sort of religion whose merit, in certain people's eyes, is proven by your political positions, <laughs> more than by the fruits of the spirit, right? Uh, and that, in many respects, is more dangerous because it presents a false understanding of what religion is that justifies not believing in it. You know. But to your point, um, I do believe that. So you know, the the late Christopher Hitchens, uh, famous. Uh, famously, a new atheist, uh, somebody who was uh, a remarkably entertaining, entertaining polemicist. Very little respect, of course, uh, for religion in general. But there are a few religious people who he respected, and and a few who he saw as demonstrating the, in his opinion, sort of the rare but occasionally, you know, found positive power of faith, and King was somebody who he pointed to directly as showing what a Christian should be even while he felt that the category of Christianity was an illegitimate one. And it's because King and his actions, regardless of where they derive from and his beliefs, according to Hitchens, nevertheless plainly demonstrated a moral capacity for transforming people into their better selves and, and scaling that impact up in society. Um, all we really have to do is consult the Scripture, really. And again, I'm going to sound like a preacher here. You know, you don't have to be a self-understood Christian though to benefit from the wisdom um, of, of of the Gospels. And uh, what the Gospels, what what the, what the Bible, you know, teaches us ultimately um, is that uh, you know we are to be judged by the fruits uh, of the Spirit. Um, by the fruit of the tree of righteousness, right? Uh, And that ultimately Jesus says to those who doubt His words, believe me not for the words that I speak then, but for the works that I do. We have to do things that demonstrate the personality of God. It's in our conduct, it is in virtue that we can show the power of what the Spirit can do, not of us, but because we believe in it, we receive it, and it animates our actions. That's the way the circuitry works, you know? That's, that's sort of the mechanics of it. Um, as long as, this kind of goes back to the old Jack Kemp saying. I think it's attributed to him, right? You know, people don't care what you know until they know that you care. There's something similar to that. Intellectual arguments on behalf of the existence of God, I actually think are important. But they're woefully insufficient in the absence um, of the power of the spirit, you know? And that's what King demonstrated. You can use that in politics because it is more powerful than politics.
2: John, thank you. Uh, A question for you. Mm -hmm. With today's current polarization, uh, if you could be the architect of its mitigation, what would be your strategy?
0: Well, so I mean, that's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's sort of a shop talk uh, question uh, for me, Chris, given what I do. Uh, so forgive me, I, I, I guess I'll take a moment to turn that into something of a commercial for what it is I do and what it is we do. So Braver Angels is America's largest grassroots bipartisan organization dedicated to the work of political depolarization, but I tend to like to deepen that by saying what we are really committed to uh, is reviving the communal fabric of American democracy. We're not explicitly a faith-based organization. There are folks of of many faiths and and no particular religious faith um, in Braver Angels. But I think we have in our coalition of members and partner organizations something uh, in common that Dr. King identified as being a common thread for all those who believed in and, and worked within the nonviolent movement, even if they were not people. Of religious faith. And that was nevertheless a faith in the transformational power of agape love, of goodwill to change human hearts and to move society uh, towards the ethical plane. I think that's what unites us at Braver Angels. And we do a number of a great number of things. We're a national community of practice right now, about 12,000 members strong, about 85 or so local bipartisan alliances. You can think of them as chapters with programs ranging from Congress to the kitchen table. Our very first workshop. So you know we have all sorts of ways of convening the American people. The very first one we developed, uh, developed by Professor William Doherty, co-founder of Brave Angels from the University of Minnesota, a foremost. Uh, family therapist and psychologists uh, was one in which we brought together small numbers of folks from the right and from the left reds and blues As we say in house not to argue or debate politics But to speak from the vantage point of their own life experiences in terms of why they see politics the way that they do It's literally marriage counseling for Republicans and Democrats. That's what it is, you know um, That was our first workshop, but since then we've developed many many more methods and techniques uh, You know we have we have workshops and courses aimed at helping people develop actual rhetorical skills for being able to communicate empathetically and in a depolarizing fashion across the divide. We have workshops aimed at helping people get in touch with their own inner dialogue and not let that, you know, that, that devilish little voice inside of you that always wants to say the nastiest thing about people you don't know, sort of keep that voice from getting traction. We have an extremely popular debate program designed by April Lawson. Um, my colleague and formerly of the New York Times and the Aspen Institute, uh, which is uh, cultivating uh, a context for debate on college campuses and local communities that is oriented around the pursuit of truth, framed around the pursuit of truth, rather than just owning the libs or you know destroying the conservatives. But what each of these things are doing are giving people skills and habits, uh, new norms birthed out of relationships people oftentimes never expected to have, people who think differently from them or repaired relationships with people who they thought had lost forever parents who think that their kids will never respect them again because they voted for Trump or or couples on the brink of of divorce um We build relationships that generate norms that people then take back with them out across the spectrum and landscape of American institutions and communities, back with them to their local governments, back with them to their office, back with them to their class, back with them to their neighborhood, back with them to their kitchen table. And in so doing, they become a part of the larger story of an America united or an America striving towards the beloved community that braver angels with our partners and and media platforms and supporters seek to tell to the broader body politic. You know, we seek to share a vision of what America could be, and this is my way of saying it here right now, but you know, if we were to honor the wisdom of Dr. King and Russell Kirk and a commitment to the interpersonal virtues and an understanding of what democracy could be if we genuinely had a respect and reverence for the sanctity of the human person, regardless of their politics. We tell that story, people become a part of our community, they learn how to move that way of being forward, and they in turn become a part of the story that we tell. And that story and those methods are touching every major institution in American life, or at least every major sector in American life, and we are just getting started. And so, I very much invite any and everybody who, is, who sees, the, sees the value in this project uh, to potentially get involved. And so, um, yeah, I am about to get the hook? I guess that's my time, folks. Thank you very much. Thank you.
1: As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at actin.org. Until next week, for Acton Vault, I'm Eric Cohn.